0: reading there about celeste holmes eldest son ted nelson ted nelson who's the internet guy who invented the internet basically
1: i did not know that
0: yeah he's uh, the guy who invented hypertext the ah, okay. uh, hypermedia well, well he, i'm not sure if he invented them he coined the terms hypertext and hypermedia html
1: isn't it I never came across that. Yeah, yeah. She, she died relatively recently, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, tw- yeah. only
0: 10 years ago.
2: Yeah, only 10 yeah. years ago. It's a shame they don't call it a home page.
0: A uh, home page, yeah, are good. In some distress, actually, because her other son, uh, she at the age of 80-odd, she married a 40-year-old opera singer. I'm reading about her here, Celeste. Mm-hmm. And uh, her other son had set up a trust fund that stopped this opera-singing interloper from running away with all her money. And the two of them got locked in a lawsuit that sucked up
1: all the money. She nearly oh, lost her Jesus. home. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. It's, always, it's very, very American.
3: It's always a good way of, of settling a uh, dispute over the estate. It's like, who's going to get this money? And it's like, Nobody. lawyers. <laughs> no, the lawyers. <laughs> the lawyers get yeah, the money. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. None of Burl us, anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Poor Celeste, Yes. In kind of like the the pension business, and there's so many stories like that where there's like a trustee is wondering, what do I do with this 10,000 euros and how do I kind of distribute it equitably? And it's like, well, you need proper advice. And how much does that cost? Oh, ten,
1: 10 euros. <laughs> yeah. um, well, it's it, it's it, it's Bleak House. It's, it's Bleak House, isn't it? I mean, that the the, the morals of Bleak House have, have lasted effectively for one hundred and fifty years. Jarndyce versus Jarndyce just keeps the system going and does nothing for the people who are actually the plaintiffs. Oh. All right. Hello and welcome to the Two Hundred and Fifty, your
2: weekly podcast looking at the IB's Top Two Hundred and Fifty Movies of All Time. I'm your host Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is your co-host, is my co-host and your co-host as well, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Just
3: about, Darren. Um, I'm I'm very well, thanks. How are you?
2: I'm good. I'm getting by. Um, We have a fascinating episode kind of lined up today. We are going to be talking about Joseph Mankiewicz' All About Eve, arguably one of the great American films, uh, one of the 100%ers on the list, number 134, one of the three most nominated films in the history of the Academy Awards, sharing that record with both James Cameron's Titanic and the 250's favourite, La La Land. Uh, Somewhat more impressive because there were fewer categories to be nominated in back in when this was nominated, but for this discussion, we have two fantastic guests uh, joining us, two heavyweights returning from last year. Last year, they joined us to talk about the uh, 12 Angry Men. It was four Angry Men talking about 12 Angry Men. First of all, the wonderful John Maguire. How are you, John?
0: I'm well, and uh, Darren, how are you doing? How are you, Andrew? Ah.
2: And the sensational Donald Clark. How are you, Donald? Hi, oh, Van well, Darren. Good to
1: talk to both of you, all three of you, other.
2: Perfect. Um, So, basically, with the, the whole... COVID thing hopefully winding down he says touching wood or something similar to wood uh, we said what we want to do is want to get some of the guests on we've had yeah n- now I've jinxed it um, yeah I
3: think we should start at
0: the start just, again. just roll it over roll it there <laughs> I have a terrible image in my head
2: <laughs> but, but I wanted to say um, we reached out to like some of the guests we had on remotely and said would you like to come on again and what would you like to talk about and I reached out to you two and I think Donald got back and he said let's talk about Fargo or all about Eve to give a sense of how long we've been organising this um, And I think John said, yeah, that's a great idea. We should do Fargo or All About Eve. But it was Donald who proposed it. So I want to ask Donald, like, looking at the list of the 250, why All About Eve? What was it that when we said any movie that we haven't yet covered, and you did say Hamilton, and I said, sorry, Donald, we have covered Hamilton. <laughs> um, What was it that made All About Eve jump out to you?
1: Well, I suppose the short answer is I was astonished it hadn't been done before, because as you say, I mean, whatever you think about it, and it happens to be one of my uh, favourite films, Um, it is one of those films that stands as sort of a pillar of the Hollywood establishment that sits there in 1950, um, at the end of the uh, an era that was kind of characterised by film noir and th- that, and then leads into another era which is characterised by great wealth and by a degree of complacency. It sits in the middle of that. It has this record as um the most nominated film, which it held. I think it held was the first hit hit 14, if remember correctly, yep. which it held on its own for a while. Um, it stands. As uh, arguably the most admired film of Betty Davis it may not be my favourite Betty Davis film, but it comes close. I think, as I say, it, I mean, I'm a great um, apologist for it, a great, um, a great defender, i a great fan of it. When you put the films before us, I think it was more the fact that how has no one done this before? I mean, it's it's as if they hadn't done you know Gone with the Wind. Have you done Gone with the Wind? <laughs> you must have done it. <laughs> <laughs> we d-
3: we
2: did Gone with the Wind. Uh, yes. We we did it as or our... Casablanca. Or, we, you
1: know, we haven't it's, done it's,
2: Casablanca yet, actually. Oh, We've I'm astonished.
1: Well, 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 John and I will come back to that. But, we, but um, it, it strikes me as one it's of those... It's an audio
2: medium, John. We can't see whatever you're miming enthusiastically. Um.
1: But it's one of those films, as I say, that is a pillar of, of, of the Hollywood pantheon. So I was astonished that you know, hadn't talked about it before.
3: Well, we, we have until the, rest, the end of time, to, which yeah. is how long we'll be doing the, the podcast. We don't want to front load it too much. <laughs> yeah um,
2: that the benefits of picking an ever-changing dynamic list like by the time this comes out dune will probably be on the list despite not being released yet yeah. uh, but john yes um what about yourself like your initial impressions of kind of all about Eve? when when donald suggested it were you like yeah let's do it or was it just what what was your kind of like gut reaction
0: oh uh, i was okay with it um i hadn't seen all about eve or upstage downstage as i like to call it uh, i hadn't seen it for about 30 years Twenty-five years, anyway. It isn't a film that I'm particularly familiar with, although I think I know it. Uh, and it was a good opportunity to watch it again with more a more, you know, you know, when you watch something, when you know you have to talk about it. That you know to watch it like that rather than just watch it as a fan or watch it as somebody who's interested. And uh, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. It's a lot darker than I thought it would be. Uh, than I remembered it. Rather, uh, it's a lot. Uh, the bitterness is, is is still there, as I recalled it, and the cynicism. But it's a lot lighter, if you know what I mean. Uh, it, it really trips along. And I was, as I was the first time I watched it, as I was being tripped up by the ending, by that last sequence, the Phoebe sequence, I, rem- I was remembering how that had tripped me up all those years ago. So there was a bit of a nostalgia trip going on as well. But... Uh, I think Donald is right, and I think you're right in your introduction as well, Darren, that it is one of the great American films. It's certainly certainly one of the great films, like Mankiewicz's brother's film, Citizen Kane, about um, the American exceptionalism, American uh, success, that kind of myth of the self-made individual. Uh, And the fact that it's played out by women in the theatre only adds to the deliciousness.
2: You kind of hit on some stuff there actually which is, is kind of interesting just to unpack very briefly the cottage history of all about eve right so it begins as a story i believe written by mary or uh, published um in the pages so i think it was was it wasn't cosmopolitan or it might have been cosmopolitan It was cosmopolitan yeah, yeah like so it, many
0: like, like yeah. so many films of the year it started as it, that short story yeah, yeah. Nine, may
2: 1946 i believe as well uh and basically it was adapted i believe for radio and then it was adapted uh to the screen as well uh, apparently based on a true story but all accounts there was a real eve in 1943 there was a stage play called the two mrs carols which opened on broadway starring the noted viennese actress elizabeth bregner Um, and basically a waif like young woman stood outside the stage door taking pity on her miss bregner invited the woman into her dressing room later engaged her as a secretary and while you can guess from how the story develops exactly how it would go um, apparently miss bregner was horrified to discover that her friend had written it up and sold it to cosmopolitan and then helped turn it into a movie as well well. Um, and you mentioned Mankiewicz as well, the director Mankiewicz, um, obviously the brother of the mank of mank fame from earlier this season as well um a record-breaking writer and director in his own right i believe he is the only writer and director in the history of the academy to have won the two for two years in a row to have won best screenplay and best director two consecutive years for a letter to three wives in 1949 and for all about eve uh, in 1950 a noted director of actors um a whole slew of actors who've worked in his films picked up nominations this very famously received. Four nominations for actresses. Uh, although ironically, none of them would win. The argument is that they split their vote. Um, I think Judy Holiday won this year, actually, which was the big surprise when we discussed on our kind of Sunset Boulevard episode. People I think were expecting Swanson to win. Um, and one of the interesting readings of this, uh, from I believe his biographer, um, Geese is the name of the, the biographer, is that you can read this as Joseph L. Mankiewicz writing about his relationship with his older, more successful brother, uh, in that Herman was this big breakout star in the early 40s, he was this great iconic writer... He wrote Citizen Kane. He won the big Oscar for Citizen Kane, uh, as depicted in the entirely historically accurate and not at all controversial <laughs> movie, Manc. Um, But like, basically he was this big star and then he entered this period of decline and Joseph kind of came up. And the argument that Geese makes having interviewed Joseph is that Joseph became resentful of being known as the younger, he's the lesser Manx. He's the, you know, he's, he's Manx's younger brother is what he is. And so maybe that plays through as well. Um, oops, sorry, John.
0: I would take issue with all of that, actually, Darren, because Joe was had made a clutch of very stylish and very thoughtful films, most of them are now forgotten, that he wrote and directed for 20th Century Fox in a remarkable six-year period, starting with Dragonwick.
2: Yeah, which is a gothic. This great American
0: gothic, Dragonwick, in 1945. There was the late George Apleby, the splendid country club intrigue of, uh, of A Letter to Three Wives, which is a film that actually verges on being a rough draft of All About Eve. Then there was House of Strangers. There's kind of a King Lear set on the Lower East Side and No Way Out, this kind of fevered indictment of redneckery and racism and all and of funny that enough, came... John, you
1: haven't, you haven't actually mentioned my favourite Joe Mankovich film yet, which is Ghost of Mrs Muir. Which it goes is, to I, Mrs Muir, which is one of your favourite films of all time, if I'm not wrong. I, that's right. I, I had to include it in the last Sight and Sign poll. I had it. In my in my ten, um, so when I say it's, when I say that it's my favorite Joseph Mankiewicz, one of my ten favorite films, that does not in any way um, suggest that I'm done an all about these. But uh, anyway, sorry, go on, John. I interrupted
0: No, you. no, all I'm saying is that Joe and Herman were really t- t- neck and neck uh, in terms of American cinema at that time. And Herman had the Herman had his own issues and his own problems, particularly with the success of Citizen Kane, for which he was never properly acknowledged, which is one of the few things that Fincher gets right in the film uh, in Mank but I thought Joe I I would I would argue that Joe Mankiewicz was uh was one of, the, one of the hot snots at the time in oh, American I, cinema.
2: I am not disparaging uh, Mr. Mankiewicz here. I'm, I'm more just making the argument that is advanced based on people who interviewed him during his life. Um, so Geese is the, the biographer who kind of interviewed him there. And you're entirely right. You mentioned House of Strangers. Like, House of Strangers was made in 1949, the same year as A Letter to Three Wives. He was nominated twice in the Best Screenplay category in that year, which is absolutely uh, insane to think about. In 1950, a young French critic by the name of Jean-Luc Goddard pronounced Mankiewicz, and I quote here, "...one of the most brilliant American directors." And because he was just, you know, because Goddard couldn't help layering it on, I have no hesitation placing him on the same level of importance as held by Alberto Moravia in European literature as well. (laughs) Um, Of course, Mankiewicz would go on to famously direct Cleopatra in the 60s um, and arguably had his own kind of impact going forward there as well. He continued working in the 70s, he directed the original Sleuth as well, which I think Andrew is very fond of uh, in terms of positioning kind of Mank on this podcast. But then before we kind of jump into talking about the movie in depth three questions just very quickly to get us started so uh john i'm gonna ask you to go first do you think all about eve is one of the best 250 movies ever made
0: i'm gonna give you the answer i think that i gave you the last time that we were on this podcast which is i don't know i i don't (laughs) operate like that i don't make lists i don't judge them one against the other uh, or, or, at least I tend not to. Okay, but somebody uh, comes but, and somebody presents in terms you with it. In terms yeah. of a body of work,
3: yeah.
0: What for what Mankiewicz was doing in for 20th Century Fox in American cinema in that decade between 45 and 55, let's say, it's all of his thoughts are are at their sharpest point in All About Eve. Everything he has to say about politics and society and the lively arts, everything that he has to say about people, everything that he wants to say about the direction that. Um, he thinks America is going in all of that is there in a very sharp point in all about Eve so in terms of that in that context yeah it absolutely deserves to be there and in the list of films that we were talking about there that he made in that time it's the only one that anybody knows it's the only one really apart from the ghost of Mrs Muir that anybody could reference or or, or bounce a point off or put a, a you know to to try to make comparisons against. And I think that's a shame. So maybe the 250 should be the 250,000.
2: Just kind of expand and Donald, what about yourself? Would it, do you think that it belongs on a list of 250?
1: If you're making lists, you know, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're playing that game, I, 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 it seems a perfectly reasonable phone to include in, two, in 200. 200 is a lot. Two hundred and fifty is actually quite a large number. Uh, so yes, I mean, if I were if I were held at gunpoint and asked to drop two hundred and fifty uh, films, I certainly would be, have probably be before white reached into three figures. Um, I would certainly would have been considering all a buddy e for inclusion, put it that way.
2: Yeah, because you, you mentioned, obviously, like the sight and sound poll, and you mentioned that this wasn't the Mankiewicz that made that. Like, if sight and sound said, look, Donald, 10, 10's a soft number. Let's go 250. <laughs> like, would this be on that list that you submitted?
1: Yes, it probably okay. would. It, it would, as I, as I say. I mean, I think I would some way before I got to three figures. <laughs> I would have written written down all about Eve, certainly. I mean, it's funny. I mean, it would not be my favourite Betty Davis film either. I mean, I would have Now Voyager probably ahead of me. Same here, of, yeah. I which, I mean, I mean, Now Voyager is... A less subtle film. I mean, it is a it is a broader film um, uh, that uh, to that tugs more aggressively at your heartstrings. But it's a film I could probably watch more. And obviously, the screenplay is, is does not compete with um, uh, All About Eve for, for zingers. Um, uh, but uh, it's a film perhaps I enjoy more. I think the Letter is a film, maybe even I might have put ahead of that. Um, uh, uh, but nonetheless, I mean, I, it, it is it is right up there with you know her, the, the, with the finest films of the person who is, in my view, uh the greatest American actress of the movies.
2: Yeah. Um And I mean, yeah, I, I feel really trashy that I'd go with Whatever
1: Happened to Baby Jane would be... On, oh, yeah, I'm no, no, not no. Not, no, no, no. Don't feel trashy at all. all. That's an not absolute masterpiece. But, yeah, masterpiece. That's, masterpiece. that's, that's, that's def- definitely top five or maybe top three, yeah. I feel um, better now I, that I was thinking of Whatever Happened <laughs> to Baby Jane. I mean, it's obviously... It, putting it in her, we'll talk about this in yeah. a minute, obviously, but putting it in her, um, in her, in her filmography is obviously slightly uncomfortable notion yes. because it goes yeah. to one of the things we'll talk about probably quite early in this conversation, which is the fact that this film signified the point at which she went through the transformation that Margot Channing is going through. That, I mean, like, you know, she made a few films in the 50s that are okay, but by the end of the 50s, she was appearing in Wagon Train on TV, you know, and then she, her, her third surge of career was as a monster, as a freak uh, uh, as a hack you know so i mean that's the unfortunate part of that film but you know it's still a tremendous film
2: um and andrew what about yourself do you think that uh, all about eve is a movie that belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made
1: yeah
3: yeah i would like i it, it, it's um, it's a tremendous film and it, it feels very relevant as well like it, it 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 we we cover a lot of um movies that are kind of about movies and they're all sort of celebrating movies and how it's like the best thing that you could possibly do with your life <laughs> and how the world would be so um, breath without them. And, the, the, and how
2: the, everything is a metaphor for making movies. Yeah. Going to war is a metaphor for making movies. Exactly.
3: But the, but the, and I, that's what real hardship I really, is. How, uh-huh. I, I, I really enjoyed how this movie kind of does the opposite of that um, and says that like, the, way, the way we think about all these things is completely backwards. And we're 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 losing our kind of um, uh, uh, values, and that might seem like a kind of a hackneyed point, but it's probably more, worth making more, more worth making now than ever. Um, kind of the, the 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 point about fame, certainly. Okay. But yeah, in fandom, yeah, you know, this is absolutely. arguably,
2: you know, I mean, the, the, like, again, we'll talk a lot about the movies that this influenced and to get this out of the way very early, um, Paul Verhoeven famously described Showgirls as all about evil in terms of referencing <laughs> it as well. But I Fair think enough, enough, you can draw... Robocop, right?
3: That is, thank Robocop you.
2: I, I set you up and I teed that up for you, Andrew. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think you're entirely right. Um, I, I And in terms of myself, uh, yes, probably. I mean, again, I i think the classic hollywood is somewhat are ironically underrepresented in terms of the list uh the list tends to gear more towards 80s 90s 2000s films there's a modernity bias there so i think that yeah there's an argument for including a lot more classic uh, american cinema in there betty davis obviously mankowitz an argument for it as well and as like a hugely influential piece of cinema that obviously still has relevance today and what about so you mentioned this was the first time you'd watched in about 30 years john so would this be on your own list of personal favorite films if if, say hi there were 250 of them but like would this be one of your favorite films ever
0: would this be no i don't think so no i don't think so i it's for to me it's all of the things to admire in this film and the things to love in it uh, it is very much a film of its time the things that it has to say are very much pointed at the things that mankovitz was exploring in his cinema at that time but to me 30 years ago it would have meant more to me but now um, now I'm a little more removed from it. And the emotion of it, the heightened emotion of it, the histrionics of Margot, the machinations of Eve Harrington, all of those things perhaps feel a little bit, it's the, it's the Simpsons, it's the Simpsons problem in that it has been referenced to the point where you're watching a fax of a fax of a fax. <laughs> it's a photocopy of a photocopy. And to me, yes, you're watching it extant as it is, but...
1: You've seen it I, I have
0: worked over. through all of that material too many times So no I, d- I don't think it would be a personal favorite of mine this isn't usually the kind of film that I go for anymore but 30 years ago I would have been uh, to the point of obsession with American cinema the late 40s in mid 19 uh, up to the mid 1950s because it was something that I was really interested in and I had access to but uh, I kind of worked that out of my system I suppose.
2: Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I think about that when I think of, like, Casablanca, which is a movie that I admire greatly but have never emotionally connected to because I've seen it done, count the things that it innovated, I have seen repeated over and over again to the point where it now just seems like a collection of reference points for other things, which, you know, and again, it, it's, in a, it's a personal response to. But, Don, what about yourself? Would this be on your own personal list of favourite films ever, your own personal 250?
1: Well, yes, I think i I think clarify that. Yes, I think yeah. it was 250, certainly. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, uh, I think, yes, I mean, if, if, if the two questions are separate questions, yeah, one so question is, does it exist? or like if, yeah, like if you're compiling it exist some, some sort of, yeah, Some object- kind of objective attempt if that exists, to put together yes. in this way as a scientist, you might kind of classify animals in, in phylums, <laughs> then it belongs in that 250. And certainly, yes, yeah, certainly. As I say, I, I would certainly be long before I got to three figures, I would be including all about Eve and that list. I mean, I think there are th- I mean, the, the problems that I have with it are, probably to do with how it is shot, oddly, more than anything else, in that bit an, an interesting comparison with Sunset Boulevard, which is beautifully shot and is an, it's an incredibly stylish film. Obviously, the comparisons are Unavoidable given they were released the same year and went against one another in the same uh, uh, Oscar campaign. I mean, there's one scene, for example, in all about Eve, which has, I think, one of the worst pieces of back projection yes. um, in a major yes. in a major film, which is when Alison DeWitt and Eve are walking down the street yes. in New Haven. And they're clearly kind of doing this. We're, I'm sorry, I'm doing some visual stuff here. Walking, you, won't, yeah. you, won't, but, you won't get the podcast. I'm imitating their own stilted walk but on the. Donald on the, appears the to be walking
2: at his desk.
1: I don't know that's, how he's doing it. That's um, <laughs> That's how it looks. Um, the I mean, green th- that screen just matter. like
3: slipped off behind you. And- <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean that doesn't that doesn't matter a great deal. I've watched this for dozens of times, and I said, but just if we're trying to again to like objectively rate these things, a film like Sunset Boulevard is so much more stylized shot uh, and structured and all those things. Um, uh, this has interesting. This has certain weaknesses in the performances. In that you have these four tremendous female performances and these two rather ordinary lead male. <laughs> I, I don't mean George Saunders, of course. I mean. I mean, the the, the the two romantic leads are terribly ordinary. Yeah, yeah. That, but, would um,
0: been, that would have been my major problem with it on rewatch is that yeah. the men really come out of Saunders' George accepted. George Saunders' side, yes. Because he's not really playing a man, he's playing the devil. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, two yes, guys, yes. these two guys, these supposed artistic types working in Broadway in New York at the time, they're all wet and weak yeah. and soppy and kind of...
1: Not smart Not very well acted not, either. Exactly, not particularly yeah. appealing actors, not bad actors. Yeah. But in a film at this level, this extraordinary female cast, golly, it is surprising they didn't kind of get somebody racier to play those parts. Maybe the movie stars didn't want to do it because they knew that male movie stars could be overshadowed. Yeah. By um by Betty Davis and and Ann Baxter and Celeste Holm and uh, Thelma Ritter.
0: Thelma Ritter, yeah. But also they might have read the script in which the Academy gets <laughs> bounced in the first two minutes; they get That's a bounce. Right the the whole thing is basically about how stupid it all is and how absolutely dre- oh, yeah, pointless yeah. and futile their expression their artistic expression. Well, exactly. Actually how, is.
1: So, like you know, however, however awful um Broadway is, at least it's not Hollywood. At least that's it's kind a, of a, that's yeah, kind yeah. of the, <laughs> like you know, or or worse still, television. Which yeah, is like television. All editions. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: yeah. So yeah, awesome. I can see. I could maybe that's all they could get, but it is it is <laughs> noticeable that there is yeah. a definite imbalance in terms to the quality of the performance yeah, between the men and the women.
3: It often strikes me kind of in, in, in these old movies there's so much of acting is having very good hair. <laughs> like, <laughs> or a good wig. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, the
2: Travolta school. That, yes. You have people um,
3: who look like extremely well on, on film, but there's no there's something kind of wooden about them. Right? Yeah. Aged
1: like wood. To drop a reference into this thing, um, great, great title. Well, I mean, it's, it's one this, it's one, I'm always very keen on um, uh, Media uh, within on, media. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's like I'm a great fan of Anthony Powell, the novelist, and all the novels in his novels have great titles. <laughs> the the Bitch Pack meets at noon. Camel ride to the tomb. I want to read that book. And I think "Aged Like Wood's a brilliant title for a Broadway player that that era
2: and and like you mentioned uh just to to get it over and done with very quickly you mentioned sunset boulevard as a point of reference i think i mentioned it earlier as well um like i think there is something to be said for ebert's argument that like all about Eve, like the biggest problem with all about eve is that it like did not age as well as Sunset Boulevard, arguably. And that, like, Sunset Maybe. Boulevard is probably a little bit better directed, as you argued. It's probably a bit more arch and ironic and a bit less earnest, which probably yeah. means that it's easier to watch today. It's mm-hmm. a bit more sarcastic and a bit less earnest, I would argue, in places.
1: But we can it's, probably it's have... Also, to- it's also just more beautiful. To look yeah. at, you know, I mean, that, and also, also a it opens
0: point. it opens with yeah. a dead body in a swimming pool, which well, all about Reviewer Eve does not shots. do. So you're yeah. there right away, right away. You're like, "How did this guy die?" You're there straight yeah, yeah, away. Yeah. Whereas all about Eve, in fact, it doesn't really. It get literally going. throws you in at the deep end. I I was struck what we're rewatching it. I didn't realize it was two hours and fifteen minutes long. It felt like a much shorter film in my head as I was trying to remember it and how all it seems to be front loaded. All of the really biting dialogue is in the first half of the film then you have the fire and fire what do they call it fire and music that big long sequence that fire and music sequence about 15 minutes long which I'll talk about a little more because I was really struck by that and then the second half of it is this gradual taper and decline until you get to this strange and mysterious ending the Phoebe ending and I think if you're making a comparison with Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard doesn't have a moment in which anything drops, even for a second. It finds a pitch right from the start and it never dips, not for a moment. I think the more valuable comparison, although we're not going to do it now in the time that we have, I think the more valuable comparison is probably Citizen Kane and Herman's script and that analysis of American success uh, and that kind of hectic element to the story. They both have this kind of heightened, hectic Uh, frantic almost mood both films Uh, where Sunset Boulevard doesn't have any of that it's as cool as ice
2: I think Geese has made the point that you can tell as well in terms of structure there's a lot of people in this telling stories about different versions of the same events and stuff like that and how you could argue that's Mankiewicz kind of riffing on what his brother did as well Um, absolutely and that
0: just to finish that point I was I couldn't remember the narrative switch either, where we start with one narrator and we halfway through switch to a different narrator. And uh, I had forgotten that too. Now, that might be technically skillful and something that we become more familiar with, those multiple points of view. But I can imagine at the time, even after Kane, I can imagine that that was quite a sensation when you're watching this film for the first time in 1950, that uh, your perspective and your... The point of view of the story would shift so dramatically and so, uh, I, 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 with with the same energy but from a completely different point of view
2: not not to, not, to again not to diverge too much and go down another tangent but like I'm reading reviews from the like from the 1950 release of this and it's kind of amazing when you look at like how film commentary has arguably stayed consistent across 70 odd years like there are like one of the reviews I think I think it's the New Yorker possibly opens with finally a film for adults a film that treats its <laughs> audience like adults and trusts them to follow along with the narrative uh, which is uh, a sentiment that I think I see echoed quite frequently but um just to wrap this up andrew what about yourself would it be on your own personal 250 your own 250 favorite movies
3: i think maybe it wouldn't I, like as, as as in this kind of talking about the the um some of the themes of uh, the film they're not particularly meaningful to me because i'm I'm above and immune to those <laughs> <them>. um, <laughs> no, but yeah, it it it, it I I I, I admire the movie greatly, but it I, I prob- probably wouldn't put it on this. I'd I'd be more likely to put sunset Boulevard just because of how kind of macabre and um yeah. weird that movie was. It, it, um, yeah
2: it's truly gothic it is yeah. actually like a properly
3: and, gothic and, and i guess maybe the kind of pokiness of this maybe fits with it being kind of uh, um about the stage and they feeling a lot more claustrophobic than um than sunset boulevard but i think i just prefer sunset boulevard not that i have to pick one or the other but yeah that's how about yourself time
2: very quickly for myself, probably not. I think we have talked in this podcast before where like I am, shamefully as a cinephile, not a huge fan of the golden era of Hollywood. I prefer the pre-code era. I prefer New Hollywood. I like the stuff that was happening outside of Hollywood in the 50s. But I find myself watching these movies and it, it, it's like, we'll get to it when we get to the spore zone. John kind of hinted at it there. The ending of this movie where you have the characters basically say, oh, and there's a lesson to be learned here about the moral values this film is imparting. Um, which is not in the original short story. Stuff like that, kind of for me as as an audience member, takes me out a little bit. I think. Uh, I think it's fantastically well made. I think it's hugely important. It. I think it absolutely belongs on list, but it wouldn't. It doesn't click for me uh, personally, which is is the way things are. And then very quickly, speed round before we jump into the Spore zone. John, if listeners have not seen all about Eve, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device?
0: Yeah, sure. If they can find it, I had turtle trouble finding it. I had a, I had a hard time. I didn't have it on DVD. I didn't have, I had to buy a Blu-ray and wait wait for it to be delivered and uh, i what couldn't find it play, no it is on google no? play no. Oh, oh was it? Oh, okay. it, yeah, I I it, thought, it i thought i thought i had thought i had done extensive <laughs> my extensive research by clicking on amazon prime and netflix and other other streaming platforms <laughs> I'm it
1: actually but, was uh, on it actually was on netflix until recently but i mean everything that was on netflix from before 1960 is not <laughs> not vanished, gone elsewhere vanished
0: so i did i uh, I had I had trouble finding it. But so if you can find it, check, oh, absolutely. There is so much here to admire and there is a lot to enjoy. But it is if you haven't seen Bette Davis and, you know, apart from a couple of the films that we've already mentioned, she has an entire filmography that's much underseen. Uh, If you're d- diving in on Bette Davis, this is where to start. I mean, this is where she's, like Donald mentioned, right on that cusp of the previous success that she'd enjoyed in her 20s and 30s and the grim 40s and 50s that she had ahead of her. And she seems aware of it. She seems to know what she knows exactly the character that she's playing. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, those eyes, that face, the, the mouth, the sneer. Her physicality, uh, all of that is there uh, to be enjoyed and admired. And uh, yeah, so if, if that's what you're looking for.
3: Yeah.
2: We should mention, by the way, like this is now a Disney movie. Um, This is now like this. This is now it's no longer that's a 20th true. century Fox yeah, yeah, movie. It's yeah. a 20th century pictures movie. But it's not that on Disney Plus, which mildly frustrated me because I went on Disney Plus. All about Steve. If you search for all about Eve, because what you it's, find is Sandra Bullock. It's,
1: it's, it's not on what do you call Star. It's Star. Star. No, it's not. Yeah. Um, I did.
2: I did almost watch all about Steve by mistake, but Donald. <laughs> um- if listeners can find it on Google Play or wherever it is to be found, would you recommend that they watch it if they haven't seen it?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, like, you know, I've already said it's one of my favourite films. It's um, so that, uh, I mean, if, they've, if they're if they walking down the street listening to this podcast, as I'm sure they do all the time because it's an excellent podcast, uh, I would say it's not one of those films where you should get terribly upset about spoilers. So if you want to <laughs> listen to the first half of this and watch it when you get home, I don't think you'll say, this has ruined the entire film for me. I mean, I can't, be- I can't believe that nice girl turned out to be a maniac. I can't believe it in her strange, <laughs> her strange half and weird raincoat. So um, I would say that much, but yet obviously. Obviously, obviously if you're sitting at home and uh, you've got other episodes of the 250 still to watch, listen to another one and come back to this um, when you've watched it. Um, and Andrew,
3: yeah, no, I absolutely would. And I um, like on, on on top of what John says, I I love um, uh, Betty Davis's deliveries. Um, like the the some some of the lines are great, but they're they're not nearly as good as her, her delivery. Delivery of them. It's um and yeah, it's just a really in in enjoyable movie, and um, absolutely, I'd recommend it.
2: yeah same here as well um i should give a shout out like the the script is is amazing the one-liners are amazing the book written about it um by i believe sam staggs has the subtitle all about all about eve the complete behind the scenes story of the Bumpiest film ever made um and that kind of i think perhaps captures the kind of tone it has this very acerbic wit it is it moves incredibly quickly for a movie that is two and two hours and fifty minutes long with that in mind then we'll jump neatly into the spoiler zone the zone is
0: this an actual zone
3: (laughs) (laughs) it's It's an
2: abstract space um if you just follow us we'll walk uh just right in front of this green screen but (laughs) donald as, as we're strolling um what is all about eve about for you
1: uh all about eve is about margot channing who is um one of the brightest stars of broadway uh uh, we assume the film was set contemporaneously so in the late 1940s um very very early 1950s uh who as the film begins is enjoying uh success in, in uh um a play uh which is um uh the right way around is um is written by her 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 sorry is directed by her husband her her lover her partner sure, her, yeah, her partner is, uh and directed by her best friends Husband. Written by your best um, friend's husband. Written by your best friend's husband. Yes, sorry. I'm, I'm not listening to what, what I'm saying myself. I, I, I'm boring myself and stop listening to myself. um When. Um, one rainy day, um, a superfan, a member of the of the Margaret Channing fandom, <laughs> um, a stan, uh, if you will, a stan, a- if you will, a stan, uh, it, played by Anne Baxter, uh, is brought into the fold by Celeste Home, who is um, uh, one of Margaret Channing's closest friends, um, and introduced to the fold. Um, she reveals her grim story as um, as uh, uh, as as a birdie. Um, Uh, played by Thelma Ritter says, um, who's um, uh, Margot Channing's assistant, whatever terrible phrases, but her, her factotum <laughs> that um, um, says like it, it tells her a terrible story with everything but the hounds biting at her heels. I think whatever it is, <laughs> how she ended up here. She's a and, war
2: widow from San Francisco. She's been to every right. stage show. She's yeah. like originally like from rural America. She worked she's worked in a brewery yeah. and it wasn't as much fun as yeah, you she, think. She's the real America, so you know.
1: So, I mean, the, the, the plot it, it's it's simple upspin structure basically that she arrives in and essentially we realize. <clears throat> Well I think we I think now watching it, we'll get this minute. I mean I can't believe I ever didn't think she was a psychopath when she, because she's so strange and so weird, and everything just says sounds like it's got it's got it's got a, a sinister intent behind it. Anyway, the, the structure of the film is it transpires that Eve has essentially got her eye on Margot's position. She is a younger woman. Margot was reached forty, which at that stage, this something you talk about it in a minute, which is really interesting. At that stage, was was career suicide for a movie star, and actually isn't now. Interesting, it's one of those things in the world has got better. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, for the top end of the business, anyway um it is not but then it was and it sort of proved for betty davis so obviously she's a second sergeant in the 60s uh, eve is there to take over her place and she maneuvers her friends and she inveigles her way in, and eventually essentially does step into margot's shoes um figuratively and perhaps literally given how, how she how she uh, scurries after her her various costumes um so that's the structure um to talk about the opening i mean the, the key the opening scene essentially well the opening scene is We have this interesting section, a framing section, An award ceremony. Yeah. An award ceremony at the Sarah Siddons Award. And this interesting thing, as I was saying to you guys recently, we were talking about this, which uh, is that the Sarah Siddons Award, which is the framing sequence around the whole film, uh, which is we learn, um, I think we learn at the beginning, don't we, is being awarded to Eve. So this is at the end of the film. Essentially, this is this is um, the point she reaches where essentially she is now the person who is being handed the Sarah Siddons Award, this grand award for her great achievements. Uh, we also learn, interestingly, that... that the film takes place between June, October. or was October and June. Anyway, it, um, in October and June, which is astonishing, actually. It doesn't really make sense. It's an incredibly short period of time for all that stuff to happen. Now, the interesting thing about the Sarah Siddons Award, like a trivia, was it didn't actually exist when the film was made. This was an award they made up. Uh, the, she, Sarah Siddons existed. She was a very famous Welsh actress of, of the previous century. It then... It was, then, it, it was then. It was in, in, It was It was instituted. Defictionalized. Good word. Instituted two or three years later. Though, interestingly, it was, it was actually awarded for um, uh, for uh, uh, um, for achievement in the Chicago theater. Um so it wasn't actually it wasn't actually for Broadway and it was awarded to Betty Davis in nineteen seventy three so <laughs> you know, I, don't think, I, don't, I don't think Anne Baxter ever got the interview, but Betty Davis did end up winning the Sarah Citizens award, which didn't exist whenever uh, whenever all About Eve was um, uh, was made. Um, I, i'm I'm hogging hogging starting part of this, but we should get on to I think I think the the first thing I would interested to talk to the other guys what you think about it is that the point that I just made there. there's two things I think interesting to talk about. One is that interesting notion. We'll talk about this first as well as others think. The interesting notion the way it gets at something very modern in the opening conversation when she appears to be what we now think of as a member of the fandom. One of these people now on the internet who, if they're following us, say, take take say Katrina Balfe with somebody <laughs> has a bizarrely... And they including all talk,
2: William Shatner, by
1: the way. Yeah, William yeah, Shatner really. is an
2: Outlander fan.
1: And they all talk about it. They all talk about by her first name. They like, oh, Katrina's doing that, that that set of people that are hanging around there. And the interesting thing was, as far as the theatre ones, I had direct experience of the theatre version of this. I worked in the box office of the Palace Theatre where The Miserable was playing. Um, I was a box manager actually by the end of it uh, in the late 80s and early 1990s and these people exist and what was fascinating about that time was but by that point in the cycle of Israel there's no one famous in it I mean they were all you know obviously very talented people they were you know playing in a big big West End show but these would idolize people you've never heard of um, and a lot of them were basically Margot Channing push them the way and storm into the stage door um, and there was that but I think <laughs> That's a very particular thing, which it was accurate about in the film. But I think it's very interesting the way in which what she appears to be is this version of what we now think of as being obsessive fandom, people who are completely focused on one thing and watch that film over and over and over again, watch that theater piece over and over again. Um, it's all they live for, and they have you know people around them often who are in the same vein, they become and they form um a kind of cadre of people. No. Of course, that's not really what she is. No. <laughs> we learned so shortly after that But in fact she's the what talented
2: she's, Mr. Ripley, basically. Yes,
1: is. yes. In fact, though she probably does like the play and does enjoy <laughs> those things, nonetheless, her real focus is replaced with Margaret. But I thought that was the second thing I would say, and, and I'll, then I'll shut up. Is that what I mentioned the way, the way in the preamble to, to this, this um, meandering diatribe? Is that <laughs> I, looking at it now, immediately think you're a psychopath. I mean, I, I can't remember, because I would have seen this now, I can remember when I was when I first saw it, I, mean, I would have seen this about 1983, the first time I saw it. So we're talking close to 40 years ago. I can't remember, A, if I knew the plot already, probably did, um, or, if I, or if I was astonished to learn, you know, within 20 or 30 minutes, oh, my goodness, she's not this lovable girl in a silly hat. She's actually a bit of a monster. Um, I've been interested to learn that, but certainly other things, but for me, she's not convincing as, <laughs> as 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 a lovable idiot in the, the first the first half hour i everything about her screams psychopath.
2: That's what I wonder about, like, the film Dating, right? Because, like, I think the film expects you to take her at face value, at least initially. Because, like, yeah. the moment where she's in the bathroom um, with, with Karen, I think it is, with Karen Richards, is the moment where everything changes, where she does, like, she does the sincere apology, and then Karen gets up to leave, and Karen says, if there's anything I can ever do to you, and then she grabs her wrist,
1: <laughs> and she I just kind
2: of looks up and goes, well, there is one thing you can do for me. <laughs> um, Like, it really feels like the movie is <laughs> expected Yeah, it really feels like the movie's expecting the audience to go, what? Wow, mind
3: blown. I would say... uh, Oh, sorry.
0: I would say uh, further on to Donald's point is that uh, of modern fandom, which is a phenomenon all to itself, that the one thing that it shares with All About Eve is the sincerity of it, that they're all of them, the actors, the writers, theatre personnel, backstage, the critics, the awards bodies... Are all of them undone by Eve's initial sincerity, even if it takes us, not Donald, but the rest of us about an hour (laughs) to realize that that wide eyed sincerity is insincere and that there's something else going on, but that there is that the modern phenomenon has that sincerity to it. It is not there. There's even if it's not real. There is this notion that you can be a super fan and that you can follow somebody religiously and you can be have this devotion to a piece of intellectual property, a film, a TV show, whatever it might be. And that that is unquestionable, that there is no that there, that there is no boundary. There is no there's no. The upper limit to this kind of fandom. There's no extent to which you cannot go. You can demand a film be re-edited. You can be demand a film be remade, reshot, scenes. whatever it might be. It's that that there's no that the upper limit to that. That
2: change to re rewrite, rewritten to meet your exactly. specifications.
0: That you have a problem with something. That that you sincerely have a problem with whatever it might be, and that nobody is in a position to question the motives of those kind of super fans nowadays. You can't say to somebody, "Would you just shut up and watch the film anymore?" <laughs> It, it, it isn't that isn't possible they have to be that involvement in the material is very Eve Harrington in many ways nowadays
2: yeah and again like it's something that I associate with the turn of the millennium with like things like the ain't it cool news where you have these people who present as earnest Superfans and then you open the door and you kind of let them in and then like all hell breaks loose um, yeah, absolutely like, I'm watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies and like Harry Knowles is cameoing in them and I'm like oh, this has gotten far out of hand but sorry yeah. Sorry, Donald. I got you off.
1: Um, no, 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 no. John, I John, John, talk. To. No, no. i
0: i That's all I have to say about modern fandom. In fairness, <laughs> it's to be avoided. To be avoided wherever you can.
3: I kind of felt the same way that that, that Donald felt, but I, 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 I I'd always kind of like give the movie credit for that because I thought I was kind of like the lone. Kind of person in the audience who is kind of like, <laughs> I don't like her. What's wrong with me? Why, why, why can't I appreciate like her innocence and essential goodness? And I was like, Why is she such a like totally? Why sycophant? am I so cynical? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So then, when there is that turn, I was like, "I knew it." <laughs> I mean, it's kind of satisfying.
2: Everybody's awful. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but can- I've,
1: I've got I've got one technical issue with with the um, with the the openings half hour. And if I and I, whenever I watch it, I, I forget and I say again, "How does she end up at the airport?" Do you remember this? Thing? Remember the, the plot is she's brought in, like you know. Um, Betty Davis, who actually, or Margo, actually kind of, basically, kind of sees through her. Thelma Ritter definitely sees through. Thelma Ritter um, definitely sees through. Her. Yeah. yeah, and then um,
2: disappears and for like the second half of the movie when she. The great be used loss. Him. The great oh, oh, loss.
1: Can I can, yeah. can I? can I do an aside here oh, now? Yeah, if you don't of With that, because you mentioned this on Thelma Ritter and on, on Bernie. Um. Anyway, sorry to finish the first point, I was just basically asking, <laughs> and then suddenly they're at the airport saying goodbye to Bill and he's going up the airplane. What's she doing there? Why is he there? Who's met her? Anyway, never mind. The point about I'm this very interesting comparison. Film is always great. Tom is always the best thing or the equal best thing in any film that she is in. Uh Nominated for six Oscars for Best Supporting Actress more than anybody else. Uh, she at one stage held tied the record for most nominations uh, without a win. Uh, passed out by Glenn Close and um, Peter O'Toole. It was a close race. In subsequent, in subsequent years. Um, I, I, this is kind of, I, I mean, this is her first nomination, 1950. Um, she should have won one for this, actually. She should have won for Pillow Talk. She should have won for Birdman of Alcatraz. And this is her this is her classic role which is playing the factotum yet again as she played for doris day and pillow talk and um, uh, 10 years later um, it, it is fascinating the extent to which this role mirrors the fool in king lear now this is a type we've had ever since you know the, the, the king Lear was written and probably long before that the person the underling um who who is uh, who's not being flattered by the uh by the forces around her and therefore can see she or she can see more clearly and who as the joker has the capacity to say things to the king or queen that others can't and like the fool in there she sees she sees through um all the hypocrisy and all the plotting and she is the only person i mean she briefly t- she briefly kind of swivels around to each side in that opening scene. Well, when she falls for the sob story, but pretty soon after that, she's back saying, "Who is yes. this woman?" She thinks only of me. No, she thinks only about you. Very good, great line. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well remembered. Now, here's the other thing, which is fascinating, is what you just mentioned, you guys. Is that is it like? I mean, I, I, I've never read this is a conscious thing, but like the fool in Lear, she vanishes after the great conflagration. The fool in Lear vanishes after the storm scene in King Lear. And there's, there's this great, uh, great time controversy about whenever Lear enters with Cordelia in his arms and says, My poor fool is hanged. Does he mean the fool or does he mean Cordelia? Never mind that. Nonetheless, the fool vanishes after the storm. Here, um, Birdie, the film writer character, vanishes after the famous party sequence, which is the big conflagration in the center of the film. So I have no idea if Mankiewicz had that in mind. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he did, um, given, you know, well-read man that he was. But I, I, it had not struck me to this point, thinking about that, that there are, there's more to the full comparison than just the fact that she's playing a similar role. I'm, I'm done now. <laughs> and, and like,
2: just uh, like we're talking, like specifically about like fandom about movies. um This, in terms of positioning itself as as a movie and like movies in the fifties, and it's interesting that you have this idea when you watch movies like Seeing in the Rain, you have this existential crisis in cinema, where cinema is like, well, television is now a thing. What is the future? What does that look like? And I think it's interesting that this is a movie about show business that is set in the world of theater rather than movies but it's commenting on things that are arguably becoming kind of emergent in cinema in like mass media uh following kind of like the following that the war and into the 50s as well which is fascinating as well and i think like there's been some argument that mankiewicz has said that if he didn't become a screenwriter he would have become a great playwright um and i think there's some suggestion that i think caher du cinema described it as not an acerbic take on theater but a lover's quarrel um and the (laughs) argument that like it's very much making the this argument that cinema like theater is kind of something that is enduring perhaps that it's trying to position theater and cinema as equivalent to one another and therefore kind of cement cinema as a great art and even here you get like the disparaging remark about television where it's like oh maybe you can act on television do they have auditions for television television is nothing but auditions oh, yes. um, which yes. is a fantastically witty acerbic line there i find interesting um but i want to quick one here cuz i i this is something that i've been thinking about since i watched all of that Eevee. it's kind of been kicking around the back of my head and i want to run it by two people well three people who are far smarter than i am on the topic um
3: where are you going to find the third person? <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: this this comes out um, this comes out in like 1950, right? So this is after the the war, and that's obviously like it's a big part of of the movie is the idea that she's a you know she positions herself as a war widow, and like the fact that she's not is a big lie and it's insulting people. Um, this is I think six years before Invasion of the Body Snatchers but it reminds me a lot of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and those kind of Cold War (laughs) paranoia movies. Right. Because, like, it's very notable. We talked about, like, Eve as a superfan. Eve doesn't really feel like a person or a human being. Like, you could tell me in this movie that she is a pod person or a robot or, like, a shapeshifter or the thing from the thing, and I would kind of believe you, where... She doesn't get any of the really witty one-liners. That's that's not her stuff. She's dressed very strangely. Her mannerisms are very odd. She's, like, her performance is very good, but it's described as, like, an imitation of Margot's performance rather than a performance of itself. And you have this idea kind of running through that Margot sees her as a younger model and replacing her. And maybe we'll talk about, like, the feminist themes of it there as well. But one of the readings of the film is the idea... That you have, and again, it's it's in the fifties where you have this fear of them, the ambiguous them, where them can be communists or whatever, or outsiders, anything that is not normal, anything that challenges the idea of what normal life should be. And I'm watching this, and I'm looking, and the villains are like Eve Harrington and Addison Dewitt, and Addison, uh, Addison Dewitt, played by George Sanders, is um, Campus Christmas is probably a, like a modest way of framing it. He shows up this way. <laughs> he,
1: I, th- I think the phrase we're looking for is uh, for both of them is coded gay. I think that is the there, the current phrase. There,
3: there's a lot of
1: kind of de- decoding.
3: Here. Yes, yeah.
1: yes.
2: Like he shows up at a party with with Marilyn Monroe, taps her on the arm, and points her in the direction of a producer. Um, oh, but hang on.
1: But the, the the most coded gay scene, which is fascinating in in, in the film, um is that scene, which Eve's relationship with everybody is is equivocal including her relationship with allison dewitt which is based on blackmail and yes. all kinds of things are basically towards the end but there's an astonishing scene where the scene when she phones up uh, uh, uh karen's house and basically tries to get her, the husband to come over and oh sorry she doesn't vote sorry, sorry, sorry her, her
2: somebody landlord, phones up well or what this is the yeah.
1: thing this is the thing is that a woman phones up sorry Sorry, I had my own story wrong. Phones up to Karen and says, um, there's a problem. He's not well. well. You yeah, over? Really. He's not well. To come over? And then they put the phone down, and then the woman who read the phone puts her armor, around Dee's shoulder, and they look at one another and smile and walk up there. And that's like the only person that she meets. And it's a very small scene in the whole film where there's nothing apparently equivocal about their relationship. They seem exactly on the same page. And, you know, we, are te- we tend to read gay subtext into films uh, not a lot where they weren't intended, which of course is not a bad thing. We all know about you know the celluloid uh, the, 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 like the critical yeah. theories behind this—the fact that they weren't intended doesn't mean they're not there. That one seems to me almost intended. I mean, that's, that's, that seems to me that we've gone slightly beyond the notion of reading in coded gayness to something that was in the back of Mankiewicz's mind.
0: I don't, I, don't, I, don't think that to Witt is to even to audiences in 1950s is particularly. The code that David is operating under isn't that hard to crack. He's this boulevardier. He's very much a cad. No, he isn't. (laughs) And he's incarnated by Sanders in a manner that becomes such a trademark that Sanders then essentially trademarked it. He patented it. He never played anybody else for the rest of his career. And he became this kind of elegant, acid-tongued social sniper uh, and years later, in his biography, his autobiography, memoirs of a professional cad, and uh, <laughs> when, that's what he called it. And what he glommed, he glommed onto David and very much played him, I think, as a gay man, and as, as if, and Mangovitz is saying that the notion uh, of this kind of social character, a critic, a theatre critic, who would be so closely embedded. In the world of theatre, which, to me, we're, we're myself and Donald have fifty years of film criticism between us, and we are not that embedded in anything to do with the Irish film industry in the same way or any film industry. We're not the same. It's not the same, and I think audiences in nineteen fifties would have raised an eyebrow as to just how neatly he had burrowed his way into this social circle and into this kind of world, but that i don't think he's coded at all i think he plays it gay he plays it as uh, not only and, and in terms of the structure of the film and in terms of the text of the film his use of blackmail his investigation into eve's private life and his use of blackmail against her is very much an ex, uh, an example of the kind of fears that gay people were operating at in america in the 1950s it is it is made real The very thing that he as a gay character would fear the most is the weapon that he uses ultimately to gain control over Eve. And I think that that's not coded at all.
1: Good point. And, and, you know, that's a good point, John. And I I mean, (laughs) to to reinforce what you're saying, there's an incredible line um, in the hotel room scene in New Haven, whatever he kind of. You know, basically blackmails into her, into doing whatever they want to do and says says something to the effect of that i should want you at all strikes me as the height of the probability yeah me, too. <laughs> yeah me too me too me too, me too addison and addison been, do it and, yeah. and even like eve herself
2: like the way in which she's dressed she's dressed like she's introduced wearing a trench coat throughout she wears these very masculine gray suits she has these starched yeah. collars um she what like, are
1: you saying joe
2: yeah, um like and the moment, like during the party, where like, and again, it's it's Margo kind of is aware of this because during the party you have like the line, "What are you gonna do? Take my clothes off, hold my head, tuck me in, turn out the lights, and tiptoe out." Yeah. Eve would, wouldn't you, Eve? Yeah, and Eve replies, yeah, yeah, "If yeah. you'd like." And Margo's <laughs> like, "I wouldn't like, thank you very much." But yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's, I, so, mean, yeah. I think very I mean I think so.
1: what we're missing here in this conversation is a gay voice, I should yeah, say, to be um, because because um, uh, uh, because what's fascinating about what we're what we've just been talking about, which is one of the most fruitful um, uh, lines of criticism, of critical investigation in this film, is that the film has a huge gay following. Of course it's a huge gay following because... Betty Davis. Davis is a huge gay following, exactly. And, you know, what she does here satisfies many of the criteria of, of Sontagi and Camp. Um, you know, that's all there. And yet, the two characters who are... I'll say Coded Gay, we we had a bit of a dispute about that, but I would say Coded Gay are the villains. And not only are they the villains, but also towards the end of the film, one of the more unconvincing aspects of the film, one of the things, again, I would criticise it in, there's that conversation in the car, which is a great scene. I mean, the the car where they're trapped towards the end, and Karen has basically sabotaged the car for reasons that you'll discover when you watch the film, and they're trapped in the snow in this car. and. It's the point at which Margot finally absolutely gives in and loosens it, it, to her friends, and she says, "A woman is not anything unless you can turn around to the man in the bed beside her. She's nothing." And this is a very—I mean, we're moving into the fifties. So this is a very conservative, heteronormal attitude <laughs> approach. Unless you can you know. look up
2: just before dinner or turn around yeah. in bed, and there he is. Without yeah. that, you're not a woman. So,
1: so, th- so, so I, mean, I, I've read, I mean, I've read—I have read the word homophobic <laughs> about this film, which is overstating it. But nonetheless, you are talking about a film in which the. Coded gay characters are the baddies yeah. and the moral at the end is a woman should settle down with a that's, man. That's 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 kind of what I wanted to get at in terms of
2: it as a as a fifties movie. It reminded me a lot of like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where it's like there is this threat to normality, yeah. and this threat to normality yeah. is this this Person who looks just like and and I'm using air quotes here in the most sarcastic sense. Sure. Normal people or what we expect yeah, to be yeah. god fearing Americans. Well, she's a cuckoo. Americans. Eve is, yeah, a, Eve exactly. is a,
0: cuckoo. a cuckoo. Yeah, she is a cuckoo. She's a midwitch cuckoo. But
2: yeah, and you can't tell by looking at them. <laughs> yeah.
0: She's the core yeah. of the film's menace. She's breathy and wide eyed and very helpful, but all the time she's this mousy kid watching from the corner from wisconsin god forbid but she the way that she turns into a gargoyle and the way that she becomes regardless of her how coded she is uh, uh, she is definitely a villain but it's the way that the villains turn on one another and become a kind of super villain that the two of them become symbiotically attached towards the end of the film that's the real masterstroke in what Magvi he, he doesn't try for confrontation he tries for connection between them he's trying to find connections between the good guys and the bad guys throughout that and that scene in the car in the cold when they they've run out of petrol or whatever it might be that he is trying to soften one side and harden the other and put his two good characters closer together and his two bad characters closer together but
2: I wanted to, I wanted to like, that's the thing for me actually, probably just for John or Donald or whoever, but like the, the question is like, that's the kind of the, the Hayes production code ending, the everything is right ending where as, as Donald pointed out, like the big ending that Margot has is, oh, I'm, I'm over 40 i should stop acting and like settle down and get married on paper i should be like a housewife because again really? we're, yeah. <laughs> we're coming out of the like the post the second world war you've got women who worked jobs during the second world war who are like now wondering whether they're going to have to give up the gains that they got and stuff and all that sort yeah. of things going on and society's like we have to figure out where this is going but like to, I... to john's point i i always like the ending with eve and with addison always struck me as like that torture of like it's the idea well eve's getting her comeuppance and even the scene with vb is like well eve is just going to get what happened to margot to happen to her i think i think john you said you wanted to talk about the ending and the the vb scene in particular i think actually
0: well i think i would love to circle back to the fire and music sequence that's right in the center the midpoint of the film and to me this is an incredible 15 minutes it's on the stage in the theater where eve the understudy uh, who we don't is not involved in the scene only tangentially at the start she's just given this wonderful performance uh, and it sets margot when she discovers this into this wild jealous rage and we've been warned uh, famously that we were in for a bumpy ride but to me that that this 15 minutes is the bumpy ride the scene is all over the place it starts c- calmly and carefully enough with everybody on a high after seeing this wonderful performance then uh, Bet Davis jumps in and it's full of spite and jealousy, blandishments, flattery, dizzying highs, worrying lows, devotions of love, broken hearts. Uh, it's the scene that has all of that delicious dialogue that makes the theatre setting. The room literally chimes like a bell and all the vicious, emotional bite of Margot and her cadre that's all encapsulated in it. But for Mankovitz, it leaps from place to place in this 15-minute block with a grace and a fluidity that makes it very credible and very involving. And it's beautifully blocked. It's beautifully staged. It's some of the best film work in the whole film, like what Donald was saying earlier on about how it's not really technically all that amazing. This sequence really is amazing. It's glorious. The lighting is glorious. The emotions are boiling. And I think that what Mankiewicz, oh, everything that Mankiewicz is trying to say about how, neurotic all of these people are about how fearful they are of the cuckoo arriving in the nest of the person, the stranger at the stage door who's going to come in and take it all away from them. Just how scared they are all the time. And to me, uh, it, it really highlights all of those kind of emotions and it's very clearly played and Baxter and Baxter. This is her quote from it. She remembers filming that scene from all she was watching from off stage. Uh, like and this is the quote from her as like a delightful group therapy session Mankiewicz was the psychiatrist we are all just glass to him and he sees everything that makes us tick and that's her quote about watching that scene and to me that they call it the fire and music scene because of the line that uh, uh, Bette Davis repeats over and over and to me it's the whole movie encapsulated everything before it and everything after it's just fun and games really but That's what he's trying to say, these kind of things about just how scared they all are and how fragile the world that they're operating in, how this solid stage, this hundred year old theater, They could be just removed from it in hours or minutes uh, that it could all just disappear.
2: Which is, I think, what Hollywood was fearing at the time, right? With television and stuff like that. Like, it's a very...
0: I'd say if you walked into any theatre in... Well, maybe not today, but if you walked into any theatre anywhere in the world, you'd find a Margot. You'd find an Eve. You'd find... You'd You'd find these kind of characters. You'd find that emotional timber that they're just so neurotic and so paranoid and afraid uh but, but, that...
1: course, but this, is, this is the interesting about the got to get letters <laughs> now
2: from actors I'm
1: sorry about that. But, we are very are. secure
2: people thank you very much uh, but
1: yeah. par- pa- we should paranoia is an interesting word um because and uh, uh, you're right john Of us, you're entirely correct but the interesting here of course is that and it goes back to to what darren was saying about Paranoid uh, thrillers of the nineteen fifties and, uh, and America on edge because they thought they're about taking over by communists um, by or, com- or communists other or, subversives, or, or homosexuals, yeah. or whatever. Whatever is that? This is one of those examples of one of, those, one of the classic. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you, filmed <laughs> Because she's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's the, right I mean, in she's in, in the scene you were talking about, John, they're all all around saying, "Stop being so paranoid." Stop it! But she's right. She is she, trying she's trying to take is over. Right I mean, she is, In yeah. the end, though, it
3: doesn't. It doesn't really matter, though. I, I, I think like like she um it's Eve gets what she wants at the point that other uh, that Margot is willing to um to, to stop playing the game and it, it, it it's, it's it's weird because it's kind of put in 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 the mouth of of max fabian earlier on but it, it feels like and and maybe maybe, maybe 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 this is a kind of like a naive point that the that the movie is making, but it's it's the let 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 the rest of the world beat their brains out for a book. It's friends that count, and even her like good would be husband, they're just pals like. <laughs> like whatever, whatever, whatever this like whether it's not really passionate. Exactly too, yeah. whether, whether whether this is a very gay movie or not, it's certainly not a heterosexual movie at all. Like it's but, not a very, sex- yeah. like, it's like not a it's, very sexy movie. It's notable
2: movie. that Eve fails to seduce Bill in what, like Bill's response is like this is not how seduction works. This but, is you have no yeah. idea what you're doing here, do you? But even uh,
3: the Richards I, I, are in like separate beds. Leave it to yeah. Beaver. Kind uh, of well, that, I think I think that's I what think, it probably yeah, is. that's probably like,
1: Hayes yeah. code or Hangover or something like thing. the Hayes code. You don't yeah. have to yeah. Show yeah. Them
3: having good. it off. But is there anything no. kind of like wrong with having like a married couple? They were very, they, they were, were very stuff.
1: uneasy about yeah. that. Well, that, but, that was a
2: big but, thing on television. Like it was in this. Oh, not until the sixties that you saw couples in bed together on television. um And by the way, like to, to Donald's paranoid point, like the moment where Birdie makes the comment, like you know, when she says she's thinking about you, she's studying you like you was a play or a book or a set of blueprints how you walk talk eat and think that's 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 body yeah. snatchers that's that's yeah, not that's all, right. all about it like, I'll,
3: I'll have a dry martini the <laughs> that that point where it's like you, the I, I like you have to kind of be disgusted with something like that it's <laughs> kind of like and it, it's a thing that happens actually like like not just in um but like in in kind of secondary school or high school for Americans, there'll be somebody kind of like in a in a in, in like I've heard people talk about being um, kind of just plagued by like younger. Uh, Imitators. People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who who, who who want to kind of like hang out with you and then want to kind of like. Take yeah, on again. your mannerisms
2: and, exactly. and imitate and Like
3: get your own personality kind of thing. Well, well I mean it's notable here that.
0: Just to, you, just to wrap up that point about passion and uh, about the lack of it, it, it. That Gary Merrill who plays the Bill Sampson character Margot's lover director. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah I know where you're going. Yeah, yeah he
0: was married to Bette Davis <laughs> yeah. at the time. They were married. They were well, married.
1: Did they get married after this? Yes.
0: No they were yeah? married. To, uh, oh. They were married. Hang on I have it here. Okay. Uh, they did they adopt the child
2: and name the child Margot, which seems like it has a lot of. Baggage.
0: Might have happened afterwards. Hang on. July 29th, 1950, they married. Uh, okay, so would have, abduction anyway. would have been after it was shot, anyway. Yeah, yeah. would have been after it was shot, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. They had a bitter divorce in nineteen sixty, just in of case it so it was anything, <laughs> okay. anything that Betty any, Davis didn't was absolutely bitter, but yeah, they had a bitter divorce.
2: But this is probably a good segue then into because I think we're kinda of wrapping up. But Don, do you want to talk a bit about Betty Davis and where she was in her career, I think you mentioned, like and, and well, how this role means. Yes.
1: Money. I mean I think it, it shows an extraordinary grasp of the realities um that she knew that she recognized that this was this was about to happen to her and i think this is interesting for a number of points and her the career is fascinating in in that um she had a rapid rise in her 20s in the 1930s um there was a hiccup whenever she had a falling out with the studio out of olivia to Havilland a few years later uh Betty Davis lost her case with in Warner's, London. wasn't ha- it? I think I think it was both. They're both Warner's. I think yeah. both the Havlin case and the and the Davis case of Warner's. I think you can check that. But, but Davis lost her case in London. She did the whole thing back like in South Park. I'll see you in London. As uh, they did that Tom Cruise episode. I'll see you in London, and um, she did, but uh, uh, but lost. And then, but she came back. You know, like a Fury in the forties, um, the Hollywood
2: uh, Cafeteria and stuff. That was her. That's like, right. Yeah. yeah, she was rebranded. herself, uh, yeah.
1: You know, for all the reputation of being an awkward song and she was in many ways, she was also a generous, dedicated person and committed herself to, to the Hollywood canteen at that stage. Um, uh, and then had those great run of films from the early 30s through the 1940s. We're talking about films like The Letter, we're talking about films like Now Voyager, um, all those terrific films, which I think define her as to my mind ahead of Catherine Hepburn or Stanley or Crawford as the star, the great female star of Hollywood's Golden Era. And at that stage. This is a really interesting comparison to what happens now. When you hit 40, you were a goner. And um, it happened to de Havilland, it happened to, to Betty Davis, essentially. And then there was this coda, which we've already mentioned. It happened to Barbara Stanwyck. They basically all ended up in telly by the end of the 1950s, and they were only in their 40s at this stage. And it's fascinating that we we quite rightly still worry about the way Hollywood treats women and about its, about the notion that when your looks start to fade, it suddenly there's a very different attitude towards you. Nonetheless, put it this way, in 1950s Alfonso Caron would not be casting a, a 1940s Sandra Bullock in Gravity, who at that stage was... 50, you know, sort of uh, not far off that age. Nicole Kidman, you know, is in her fifties and has just appeared I've uh, <laughs> just appeared. Well, that's another issue about but the extent to which what yeah, yeah. you're a, you're a professional exactly. people can do to you to help you along. But I don't, I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's just that. Um you know, Kidman is still a sort of big movie star, um, you know, so is Bullock. You know, Meryl Streep never really went over a cliff. You know, I mean, at, um, uh, nor did she have to start playing hags in her forties. I mean, she always she didn't tend to be twenty years younger than she was. Um, uh, Kate Winslet's forty five, and just you know. So the point I'm making, you get where I'm going with this, is that it's interesting that. Although we quite rightly bemoan <laughs> what happens to women in the industry, one thing has got better, one maybe small thing, we're talking but
2: for the very top... higher upper strata, exactly. yes, exactly. Like we're not... talking to yeah.
1: people right at the top of the profession, but at the top of the profession, as were Betty Davis and yeah. Barbara Stanwyck and all John Crawford. That's changed. That now you can remain a movie star, or you don't have to play in, in horror movies, you don't have to play hags. Betty Davis, in her case, I say by the late forties she was appearing on television. I mean, I, I and then she had the second wind, well, essentially. And she, but she was—I mean, she was smart, and she there was less vanity in her than Joan Crawford. I mean, Joan Crawford in whatever happened to Baby Jane was still kind of playing a version of Joan Crawford. You know, she was still wearing the same makeup that she'd worn 20, 30 years in the mm. silent era. I mean, mm. you know. Comfortable star, but, but whereas Davis was allowed Staying herself up. and enjoy dressing up as this grotesque. She put layers of person. makeup
2: on top of layers of makeup. She decided yeah, that her character yeah. would never remove makeup and instead would just apply more on top. Of and him, things she, like and that. she
1: won that battle for that reason. Yeah. But he, I mean, so but she became this kind of star of of, of you know that was the, by far the high point of that era. Um, but she became a star of horror movies and the nanny and other, other pictures like that, Escape from Witch Mountain. But at the same time, it was I mean I remember a, a few years ago um, I was flicking the channels and there's an episode of the Virginia yeah. I will I will remember and John might just about yeah, remember, yeah, I remember uh, exactly. but certainly when I was at I was a kid it was um a uh, big, big 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 um western show and there's an episode and Betty Davis was on there as as you know as the guest star in an episode of the Virginian you know I mean it's you know that you know that's and
2: and again like to get a sense of what that means this movie itself mocks the idea of being on television that's yeah like it was exactly. exile it was it was mm-hmm. like limbo. Yeah, it was, it, the point
0: is that uh, Betty Davis very nearly didn't play this part. Yes, I was about to Zanuck, with John. D- yeah. yep. Daryl F. Zanuck, he wanted Marlena Dietrich. Yes. Mankiewicz wanted Claudette Colbert.
1: Yep. Well, Colbert. Colbert was actually cast. Yes. She was and cast. She and I came across an interesting point, so I wasn't in recent reading about this, that, 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 that Anne Baxter was partly cast because she looked a bit like Claudette Colbert. Well, she kind of does. She's got a round face and it's like, I know that's true, but I read that somewhere. It was, well, it was interesting. But anyway, sorry, John, go on. The Well, I was uses, saying basically yeah.
0: that she hurt herself just before they started shooting and they tried to replace her with the veteran at the time stage actor, Gertrude Lawrence, who yeah, most, most yeah, people yeah. wouldn't <laughs> know until they discovered yeah, it, to no, the her horror. Partner, yeah. yeah, exactly. She went through the script and scratched out all the stuff that she didn't want to do. She didn't want to smoke a cigarette. She didn't want to drink alcohol, and she didn't <laughs> want to let other people play the piano in that great. Yeah. Party, Certainly not five sp- times. The party yeah. scene where she gets basically staggering drunk. So it's only then that they went to Bette Davis, and she she wasn't available for a week or two weeks after they'd started filming. And uh she was playing a part in a in a film that nobody remembers. The
2: payment on demand or something?
0: Payment on demand, exactly.
3: I'm sorry uh, sorry, Andrew. No, I, I just thought it was, it, it's interesting in this movie that like Joan Crawford and Stanwick and like even Zanuck are are, are, are people who exist. That like, is like Joseph yes. Mankiewicz and Betty Davis, are they also kind of um, it's 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 very
0: my point is that it's very all about Eve to production of all about eve is very all about eve that there yeah. was that the, this this is one of the things that we can take forward to today's film industry and the way that the industry operates self-aware now Self-aware and
2: referential it's it is yeah.
0: very very much uh, a, a reflection of how things get done in theater and cinema it is the warm body that's there in front of you it might not be the one that you actually wanted at the start uh, and that these chairs that they're sitting on are musical chairs and that they can shift and change at any time. And it's only afterwards, you know, that you, when the thing is done and the thing is, becomes a classic, becomes this 70 year film that people watch and refer to all the time, uh, it could have been very, very different. And that's in every film and every production, every theater, everything, everything creative could be something completely different.
2: And, and in terms of just the, the kind of like the use of theatre here and again it's interesting because it feels like cinema's punching back because for so much of its existence cinema had been treated as the ugly stepchild the lesser art form um, particularly up to this point it was the disposable medium so much of silent cinema's lost like the fact that it was joking about theatre and mocking theatre was seen as being like oh they're being sassy now that they're old like I think was it uh, Bosley Crowther in the New York Times wrote Hollywood butt of sarcasm from the stage for these many cruel years has finally Sent forth a Goliath that rings David's <laughs> impudent neck after tossing his stinging stones back at him with swift and relentless force, and like. I was um like uh, for research for this I always used to get all about Eve confused with Adam's rib which is the Catherine Hepburn <laughs> uh, Spencer Tracy romantic Great. comedy oh, yeah, from the yeah. previous year and I went back and I watched the trailer and it's amazing when you watch the trailer for that because it's like it's Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn and four people who we swear have been on theater stage so you know that they're good actors um, <laughs> really because yeah, it yeah, actually yeah. like it, it lists them and then lists their theater credits underneath so it's like you know they're real actors because they've done actual acting yeah, which like, I the whole kind whole of
3: thing with Sid Disençane, but they all kind of um, came up through Wells's theatre yeah, troupe, yeah.
1: Yeah, Mercury. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Um Is there anything else we want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed already? Kind of jumping. I think the we should up. talk a little
1: bit about Marilyn Monroe.
0: Yes. Uh, yes. The yes. pneumatic Miss Caswell, like Arthur Miller, a graduate, a graduate, a graduate the of the Copa Cabana School of School. Drama, School yep. of Dramatic <laughs> Arts, rather, and she's a would-be Eve. She is. The cuckoo that's actually invited into the nest, do it brings her specifically to the party to meet the producer and to to start her career. Go over for there we, and
2: for yeah, what help we don't know,
0: but she doesn't have the stomach for it, and she, literally, literally, she throws literally, up. <laughs> exactly, doesn't have the stomach for it, and it suggests her appearance. She is luminous. They, they, you couldn't light her badly. She's sitting at the end of a stairs in the great scene where they're all sitting on the stairs. And she's she literally glowing on the stage on the screen. But that it does suggest Mankiewicz's point that behind every one of these actors, these uh, and their understudies, there's somebody else just standing there behind the fire curtain in the theatre ready to murder for a good part if they have to. And Monroe's out of it. She doesn't she, she's watching it. And she's seeing what's going on, but she doesn't want to get to become part of it. She's that close to it. And uh, it's apparently really not an act because that scene, the scene of her in the lobby in the theatre, which is a slightly earlier scene when we first meet her. Apparently that took 25 takes. Mankiewicz's record on the film was 25 takes for her to say a line of dialogue, turn around and walk away. And she, so, she apparently
2: got so sick she vomited, and apparently, like Betty Davis, like berated her on set, which I think um, caused Sanders to call her out as well. I'll actually find the quote because Sanders has a suitably biting uh, quote for his his opinion of Davis on the movie. But yeah, life imitating art, which is interesting, and it is the
0: least the least promising debut in American cinema. I would say <laughs> in the history of American cinema, it is that she is there as a pretty girl to sit, to perch and ta- and ask for a drink at the end of the, uh, at the foot of a stairwell. That's really her only function. You, you can't. And, it, can't. That's a, and for Monroe to become then, to become Marilyn Monroe from that, I think is extraordinary. Well, I, I think, think I, I think do. she
2: she po- I do think she pops in this because this is the thing she'd been under contract with Fox for several years at this point, and in fact she was at this stage seen as being a lost cause. I think she ended up doing the Asphalt Jungle uh, the same year with MGM because Zanuck didn't think he could make anything of her, so he contracted her out. And then basically off the back of this, she en- and off the back of the Asphalt Jungle in the same year, she ends up staying under contract with Fox. I think for twelve more years until her death. Um, I think like it's it's seven years, and then she re her contract for five. um I do. I do think she like she has when you look She's at her. Gorgeous, just you, luminous, yeah. absolutely
0: gorgeous. And uh, we
1: haven't mentioned the fascinating, uh, there This is uh, one of. I mean, this is one of those one of those films which you can imagine a whole range of different versions in terms of the casting. But one of the most interesting casting conversations was around her. The, the person originally cast in the role was Angela Lansbury. No, of all people. Yes, they originally wanted Angela Lansbury, who was a pretty young woman oh, yeah, absolutely. pretty, yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty old woman pretty old woman now but but you know did not without best will in the world have the you know sexual charisma of marilyn monroe um but it probably I def- know lansby would have actually been you know a pretty established actress by that stage the way that monroe wasn't but um that's who that's who's in the in the slot for a good while
3: it, it really fits this movie that everyone seems so oblivious of how like, the most gorgeous person in the world is in the room. Like, he's like, he forgets that he's bringing her a drink. <laughs> Um, well I
2: mean like that that's the sequence like the sequence where it's like Margot Eve uh, and then Coswell and Addison like the sexual tension in that scene is like it's Eve and Margot who are standing next to each other and touching each other like um yeah. Caswell and Addison might as well have just randomly bumped into each other on the street which basically seems to be about it um I d- I will note actually Monroe apparently was fond of this role she continued to use the name Miss Caswell in phone messages uh that throughout <laughs> her life as well um <laughs> A bit of an in joke, which is interesting. Um, all right, is there anything else we want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already with regards to all of Eddie? Anything that we think merits a little bit of kind of discussion?
1: Well, I think we would to close off, uh, um, with the discussion of that year's Oscars, which I think is which we, we've mentioned kind of you know in, in passing, but I think it's it's it is an interesting just to look at that list and see. I mean, people would put, put the real kind of Epicenter of Hollywood's golden age at ten or eleven years earlier than thirty nine forty, but my God, like you know, the 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 competition then was pretty extraordinary. I mean, Best Actress, as you mentioned, was won by Judy Holiday, which is, I mean, was regarded as a as a, a bit of a a turn up, but it's a terrific performance in Born Yesterday. And um, we were talking you were talking earlier on about. Um, uh, about um, Adam's Rib, which she's, she's also terrific in. But that, I mean, that Julie Holiday and Born Yes is one of the great comic performances in uh, American cinema. Uh, Baxter was was up, um, who was never going to win, you know, against Betty Davis, who was up. Uh, Eleanor that would Parker, be a very
2: all about Eve twist if, like Baxter, word, won over it? Davis, yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah, um. uh,
1: Eleanor Parker is perhaps the, the slightly odd one out there for Cage. Good performance in, the, in a decent film, and then Gloria Swanson, at um, uh, in Sunset well that's an incredible. Incredible lineup. Um, the best picture you've got born yesterday, all about the Sons of Good mentioned, Father of the Bride, a terrific comedy. The all went out there is King Solomon's Minds, um, uh, a, one of the many versions of, of that H. Ryder Haggard um, uh, uh, book. Uh, Sanders Saunders was the only one who won at uh, he beat Eric von Strohype <laughs> in of Boulevard. Boulevard
2: I mean, like there's the yeah. line from um Davis, he won that goddamn
1: award at my expense uh, when <laughs> w-
2: when he took home the Oscar. Um Davis
1: Ever the biting Wit. Yes, yes, yes. But I think that I mean that's it, it's worth looking at that. And that but really is kind of I mean what you want know, a kind of punch up um those awards were for ten or twenty years. I mean just an extraordinary kind of lineup of incredibly kind of powerful, and interesting and charismatic people whose reputations still stand.
2: I I mean look, you know, I mean look, you know, sometimes Green Book wins the Oscar.
1: I mean it can't yeah. it can't be Green Book
2: every year, unfortunately, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, but um all right then. So I think that event wraps it up then in terms of talking about all about Eve, unless there's anything else you want to talk about. The only thing I would the only thing I would say is
0: that Yes, it's sh- sharp and cynical and deeply intelligent and really quite wonderfully active. But I think the thing that endures about all about Eve is that the dream that Eve Harrington has is the dream today, that that Im- bright lights, the allure of the bright lights have not dimmed at all in the intervening 70 years and that, and updated, uh, there wouldn't be very much different if they were to remake all about Eve today. I think the same points would be made and the same ideas would come across that the the celebrity and fame and the fortune that comes with it, awards, beautiful gowns, luscious apartments, a drink on tap, a cigarette in every hand. You know, that kind of sophistication that Mankiewicz was trying to put across as the great prize here is still the great prize today, and very little has changed.
2: But crucially, it's 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 fame for its own sake. Like Eve doesn't want any of it because she has any enduring passion or excitement about the art. She yeah, wants it because yeah, it's yeah. a it's a way of life. It's it's again. We never it, we never see her act. Yeah, and, and no. <laughs> no, <laughs> sure. we never they see
0: would... her. We never see what they're all talking. We never see her do a scene. We never yeah, see know. you know it's... what she's what the great big fuss is all about. I think I mean, that's I, really that's really cynical as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, perhaps, perhaps I thought they couldn't manage. I, I would also add one postscript that um, uh, at a brief postscript, which is uh, you, you, you would expect from me, which is that we talked about the way in which um, uh, uh, that. It was very difficult for actresses when they got past 40 or uh in that era. And one of the things they ended up with in television. It's interesting that there are is only one Columbo killer in this uh, in this cast. <laughs> and you'd, you'd, almost, you'd expect more because <laughs> they, must, they must have tried to get uh, Betty Davis over and over again as a Columbo killer, but she didn't give in. Uh, Anne Baxter plays a very Anne Baxter-like character um in uh in uh, an, uh, a very very strong episode of Columbo. Uh also Celeste Home as a supporting role. Than the Columbo but uh, as well, um, but uh, just the one Columbo killer would, would she have gotten off? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the Colombo test, yeah. the one that got the one that got off with that would be that would be perfect, actually. The could, one that got off was the biggest star could of all. Would she have been convicted?
2: How what prosecutable is this case? Is the question, um, but to bring
1: it back to what, what
2: John said there, which I find is kind of interesting about this, is that this is at once like. It's a weird flip side of A Star is Born in some senses, where it's a, in some ways more relentlessly cynical in that it is a story like A Star is Born is about an older star discovering a younger star and mentoring them and bringing them up and like acknowledging yeah, that yeah. like Hollywood needs to change. We're, this, on the other hand, is a younger star parasitically attaching themselves like a leech to older star. Yeah, it's, it's
0: cannibalism, basically. Yeah. The cannibalism of fame, cannibalism of Broadway, how is that there there isn't any way to get ahead except over the bodies of your vanquished enemies.
2: But this is the thing, like for all that it's that cynical, it has a happy ending, relatively speaking, because Margot goes off and lives happily ever after as presumably a fifties housewife. Sorry, Andrew, did I cut you off there? No,
3: no, no. I, I was I was just going to say that, that um it's um that I prefer this because it, it it's it's a <laughs> like like Eve is is saying oh me i couldn't be an actress but it's completely <laughs> insincere whereas like yeah. you have that kind of um um uh, innocence in i'm even just forgetting the name of that's uh, the uh sorry a star is it. born a star is born yeah yeah so, which i did not, <laughs> it's like. not like there's
2: been yeah. like four of them it's, it's, so it's many.
3: <laughs> a star is born
2: four <laughs> a star is reborn yeah. but like what's really yeah so I find that kind of fascinating there as well alright then Um. so uh, in terms of when we get to the end of the podcast we normally ask our guests to recommend something for listeners something you're enjoying at the moment it can be something related to the movie something unrelated to the movie just something that you are enjoying and you think audiences or listeners might appreciate so to give John and Donald a chance to think about it I'm going to ask Andrew to go first
3: I just realise we never talked about our, our nonsense where we talk about yes. inappropriate smoking you can't smoke on a runway it is a um and there is a sign telling you you can't and you shouldn't smoke a bed the public service (laughs) there's 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 no um there's no maybe that's why they sleep in
2: separate beds i did think she threw
3: out an olive at one point but it looks like she kept it um and in terms of they do eat those
2: breadsticks (laughs)
3: yeah they do or yeah i couldn't tell if those were breadsticks or if those were those little kind of like um bok choy or something or or what do you call it
1: chicory i thought it was like no a it's 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 a cu- cucumber stick isn't it oh okay. yeah this, it this is the well, problem with black and white this is the problem yeah it, which would you put in, the put in bloody mary is right
3: ah, okay. put, uh-huh. yeah. 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 yeah yeah so th- so th- yeah there was, there was no
1: no 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 food sorry 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 Salary. i mean salary. not cucumber. No, celery yes it's a celery thing yes Salary stick yeah there it's was a okay. Film podcast, was,
3: not a cocktail podcast. We're speed. okay, we'll yeah, get absolutely. away with that one. There was a film drink. Uh, but re- re- recommendation-wise, um, things are opening up. Something that I thought I maybe wouldn't be able to do, um, and it's kind of up to people who, like what kind of choices they, they make. But something that I did was uh, a friend of mine was moving house in London. And I offered a help, help move house and I had to go see Leopoldstadt. In um, it's 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 on at the moment. I think it's in the. Aldrich. Tom Stoppard. Yeah, yes. Could,
2: this, is, this is like I feel like this has been a journey you've been building towards. Yeah, through... I,
3: kind of uh, Tom Stoppard. I'm sure he's not going anywhere, but he's like like an octogenarian. They're not going to at him. Uh, play playwright. Um and yeah. Um and um, it was fantastic. Like it is kind of like. Uh, everything that I kind of expect in a good Tom Stoppard. Um, be to everybody's taste, but it it, 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 I know, I know, it's a hackneyed thing, but it made me laugh. It made me cry. I, 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 I was like, um, inconsolable. It tore me apart. But um, uh, if 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 people do feel like going back to theaters. Um, it's a whole thing where where you have to kind of present your, your COVID certificates, prove that you've been um uh, vaccinated, and there's all of the kind of measures in place to uh, protect people. Um, but it's up to it, it's up to people whether they do that. I wasn't sure what I would, and but I was glad that I did. Um, uh, and if if you can go to the theater, do all
2: right. Um, and then, John. Uh, sorry, uh, John. What would you recommend for people? What are you enjoying at the moment? What would oh, you no,
0: I think uh, cinema is pretty packed at the moment. Uh, the release schedule that we're looking forward to over the next couple of months is is pretty exceptional. And there's a lot. Just of in terms really... of
2: release, this is coming out in second October. Sorry to cut you off there, John. Just if you want to. Pitch. Okay. Well,
0: even so, there a lot of the great Irish films that we've seen over. Uh, The last couple of months that have been a backlog, really, that have come out in this gout of Irish cinema in the last couple of months. I really like Desperate Optimist's Rosie Plays Julie, but uh, my recommendation would be uh, for Tarantino's novelized version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, which I think uh, I just finished. Uh, I liked a lot more than I liked the film and well it's a bit late now because we've talked a bit long I was going to watch the movie again tonight but I'll leave it <laughs> sorry again because I, <laughs> uh, no, that's okay I, uh, I think the book is really good and I think when Tarantino does famously finish making films uh, I'd look forward yeah, to yeah, I'd yeah. look forward to reading mm-hmm. the novels because it's they're loose and and it's uh, very simple and uh, but his language is really extraordinary and the way that he builds character in short chapters uh, I think is wonderful even if i hadn't seen the film i would have i would have i i would have enjoyed the book uh, and now that i'm going to watch the movie again i i think it adds a lot to it so that would be my recommendation once upon a time in hollywood the novel
2: Ah. we've we've had other other guests recommended over text as well so it's, it's a double recommendation there donald what would you recommend what, what are you enjoying about?
1: uh well um i uh, can place drop as i'm just back in the last uh 10 days ago from the venice film festival um which i'd never been to before and which was a terrific experience um uh hot full of mosquitoes um um, um, uh, um on plenty of boats and vaporettos taking my way from the main island of Venice across to the Lido where it happens. And it was a good festival. It was um I, I was there for the first half and they um uh, they front loaded they tend to do with Venice. Um and you'll have heard about the films tonight. I saw and enjoyed but I, I shall mention them again I, I liked Spencer very much which is Pablo Lorraine's film uh, with Kirsten Stewart as Princess Diana kind of a sort of a spooky ghostly sort of thing that, um, uh, not as fluid as his version of Jackie but still I thought very unsettling in a way that was, was clearly intended um, uh, I really like the new Paul Schrader film mm. the, uh, card the, card, the Card Counter The Card Counter exactly which mm. I think is coming quite soon to us I think it's yeah, not think it is too, not yeah. too yeah. far off it won't be here by the time the public podcast site, but not long after that, which I mean, I mean, you would say, mind you, it's a Polish, it is very much a Polish radio film. It's, you know, Oscar Isaac is this former US interrogator who after being imprisoned um for torture um tours the casinos of of the of the west um in a kind of you know existentialist you know gloom that you've expected we, we saw with travis bickle and uh, we saw in white and so but it's a very good version of the post radio i think 5th best... of november donald 5th of november it okay. opens here. good stuff well we, we, we safely got time to, to to save up your money to go and see that um at the, the uh, this is not that you would have read about this so i'm not i'm not in particular, out I, I, here, here, the best thing I saw, I think, was a Jane Campion film, *The Power of the Dog*, which I thought was terrific. I thought it was her best film in decades, maybe since *An Angel at, uh, at My Table*. Uh, uh, and novel by thomas savage cumberbatch is this tyrannical um farmer in, in montana uh who go who becomes even more deranged remember his brother played by jesse Clements marries um, uh, um a widow a, uh, a young widow played by kirsten dunst and he goes completely bonkers there's a big sublimated gay theme to it which is very interesting i thought that was terrific so those are three that i would recommend in terms of just trashier stuff i've been watching it got home one thing i, I would recommend uh, i've got into watching um youtube videos of Siskel and ebert which are oh fascinating. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean firstly you know they're often slided off they' they're, they're good you oh, know yeah. They, they, yeah, they, yeah. they have they're a bright guy but the fascinating thing about that others have said this and this is simplifying it is astonishing if you watch episodes which are there from the late 70s um through to the episodes in the 90s by the end they i mean You know, well, yeah, it's obviously a stage thing in review shows. People put on fights and they kind of, and that's always very good value. They seem to loathe one another. In particular, Ebert just seems to be so nasty to Sisko. <laughs> I mean, he sort of turns his nose up and rolls his eyes, you know, kind of waves them off with his hand whenever he makes the point. It's fascinating. I mean, maybe it's all greatly exaggerated, but by the end of the day, this is actually kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> two guys seem to loathe one another. But I, I would instantly, I, I, one thing on that, I would just, on that as well, very interesting. Very, very interesting point about those Cisco and Liebert things. And the point I made about several times, but the interesting point when Easy Rider's Raging Bulls came out in the early 1990s. It's interesting that it wasn't until quite a long time after the 1970s that the notion of the 1970s as a golden age of American cinema emerged. If you watch Cisco and Ebert of the, the best of the 70s, they're not particularly impressed by American cinema in the 70s. In fact, Ebert says something like, "Well, I think in this decade there were some good films. Most of the best films came from abroad. You know, most of the best films, were, like you know, mentioned late films by Bergman and so forth, was by the in, the in the end of the eighties. One they still haven't got right to the nose. <laughs> they say like, well, this was a, was a pretty decent, you know, you know, maybe it's going to sound maybe a bit, maybe a bit better.' It's like that's an aside that's for another conversation
3: I want to say to listeners that uh, Darren and I don't actually hate each other it's just for the podcast it's just just a bit to be clear Darren says he gestures into the air for Andrew to wrap up
1: The, the contrast is pretty marked, I tell you. Once those later, ep- later, episode, later episodes, later episodes and Ebert? by the time very...
0: you get to two hundred and
2: forty-nine, oh, but we're already I think, I think at two... each other's throats. I think this is like two fifty-five. I think is roughly. Oh, where is it okay? Okay. Um, <sighs> but yeah, we, we have our moments. The, the uh, when I, when I make Andrew do like a twelve-week Scorsese season, you can really sense the simmering anger that kind of builds through. Um, in terms of recommendations uh, for myself, because uh, Donald was just talking about Siskel and Ebert, I've been listening to. Uh, Gene and Roger, the series run at the Ringer, Ah. which looks at the history of Siskel and Ebert, uh, which is well worth seeking out. Uh, Because I also do not regularly listen to podcasts, uh, wonderful season of You Must Remember This, which was done on Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, which is well worth seeking out, providing a lot of context for my understanding of both of them as actors. Um, And because um, Showgirls is all about evil, just Paul Verhoeven movies in general, I've been diving back into them over lockdown, and I feel like I can make a connection and say that they are close enough. All right, then, so, John... Donald where can we find you what Yeah. so John watch up to where can we find you if listeners want a bit more John in their lives where are you
0: I'm right here alright you can read me in the business post you can follow me on Twitter at Critic. you can stop me on the streets and tell me that I'm an idiot you know I'm here I'm that's around that's kind
2: of redundant since Twitter again. hanging around
3: yeah, you don't um, need to outside stage doors for people yeah, you to, can... to call you an idiot. You just have Twitter.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and Donald, where are you at? What you have to? Uh, IrishTimes.com is uh, always easy enough to remember. Um, you can follow me on Twitter on at DonaldClark63. My goodness, I wish I'd caught myself something else. Um, and <laughs> uh, I'm on Arena on RTE occasionally as
0: well. Oh, yeah, I do Arena occasionally. That's the job. Too. Yeah, yeah. So,
1: yeah, don't listen to Arena. Come. Stop yeah, listening yeah. to these
0: guys.
2: Yes, yeah. turned listening <laughs> into work.
0: arena. Well,
2: I mean, Andrew is also on arena. We don't bring it up because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, all right, then. So, so we'll be back next week. It's, we'll be covering the frame one.
3: of me. It's, yeah. kind of, it's like it's just in the dog. bottom corner. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. We'll be covering um, John Ford's um, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Uh, we'll have oh, a wonderful panel good. with the wonderful Ronan Doyle, the fantastic Jason Coyle, the sensation Lee and Martin will be joining us for that discussion. Until then, thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you, John. Thank you, Donald. John, sorry for keeping you, you from uh, Quentin Tarantino. All right. We'll. <laughs>